0: Hi, folks. Welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel by clicking that red subscribe button below and click that bell to make sure you get notified every time we upload a new video. Enjoy today's lesson. We are on Sea of Galilee, part four of how many parts? I don't know. And we're still going to be in the same story. That we've been in the past few weeks. And again, as I said last week, I hope that that helps to illustrate how much detail is placed into these stories and how much of the cultural context needs to be mined so that we can grasp a fuller sense of what's going on. Things that they took for granted we have to do a little bit of work to get there because we live 2,000 years later. So 2,000 years across time and then definitely across cultures. Israel is an Eastern culture. We are obviously descendants of the Western culture and we're scientific materialists. So we put everything through the lens of scientific materialism instead of the way that the first century people thought about their Conception of the cosmos. So we'll go over that a little bit again today. I'll title this one. This is the Get Out of the Boat edition. We'll see that at the end, why I titled that. And if you have your Bible available, you can turn to Mark 5 again, 1 through 20. That's the story of the demon possessed man. And then if you have a little marker or you can use your thumb, uh, to stick in Luke, Luke 8, and same story, demon-possessed man, but I, what I want to do is use the use this time to show you a little bit of, as, especially Luke writing after Mark, how he writes, how he adds details. That's the key. The tendency for anybody, any scribe copying a sacred text, the tendency is to add but not subtract so if they add for clarity the but they won't subtract anything anyways we'll see that in luke so mark 5 1 to 20 we'll read that today and then luke 8 demon possessed man just as way of comparison these are going to be the main points we're going to read through mark 5 1 to 20 and we're going to pay attention to the details and then i'll try to bring out highlight as many as we can to help our understanding, particularly our understanding of why the disciples are going to act the way they act, so that we're not overly judgmental of them. So we'll look at that details. I'm going to add in, and I put these on your sheet. I don't assume you have a book of Jubilees sitting in front of you. I'm going to show you a quote from the book of Jubilees. comes from about 200 BC, so 200 years before Jesus. This book is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it was a very popular book, so I'll show you a a quote from the Book of Jubilees, and then I want to show you something from the rabbinic thinking about tombs, because Mark is going to keep repeating the word tomb, almost to the point where you're like, okay, we get it, Mark, you don't need to keep saying that again. What is it about tombs and how the rabbis thought about tombs? And then all of this is going to go into the ver- the, what we end with are the actions of the disciples. God willing, I'll be able to funnel all of that down to where we get a, a more robust picture of why the disciples are behaving the way they are.
1: Okay, quick review.
0: This picture was taken from Mount Arbel. Looking to the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, that's the religious Jewish corner. So if we go to this map here, you've got Mount Arbel that sits about halfway down the lake on the on the western side. The picture is looking up at the religious area of the religious Jews where Jesus lived and did most of his ministry. To the south of that you have the Herodians. Herod Antipas puts his capital city there which certainly did not make the Zealots very happy, but he puts his capital city there at Tiberias. If we go across the lake where we were last week, and we'll be again today, is the Decapolis, and that's where the pagans live. So we need to understand what's the interaction between Jews and pagans. And then finally, uh, in that top northeast corner of the lake, which now, as you go to that northeast corner, one thing we have to realize is we've entered a new political area. This is now the realm of Herod Philip. It's his kingdom, and you get the Zealots. So they're separated by a fairly large wadi that's going to separate the Zealots from the Decapolis. Okay, that's our, our regions around the sea. We also noted a couple weeks in a row that we have to think about the sea not only as a body of water that's you can catch fish and go swimming and drink from, but it also represents the abyss. It's the it's the enemy of God, the forces of chaos. So, throughout your Old Testament and throughout ancient Near East thought, the sea is the abyss. The water is the enemy of God. God separates the water in Genesis 1, and that creates order. And When your life falls into chaos, it feels like a flood is rushing over you, and you can't quite get your footing. And then you reach, call out to God, and God becomes a rock that you put your foot down on. And So all of that imagery goes into this idea of sea. And then two weeks ago, we talked about how the authority of God is passed down to the Son. In the Old Testament, God stills the sea. Jesus shows up, and he stills the sea. And the disciples say, whoa, wait a minute. Who is this? Because God stills the sea, and now we have Jesus stilling the sea. So what does that say about the Son? So the authority of the Father is passed down to the Son. This is all the past couple weeks, as a way of review, because this is going to come into one thing we got to note. We want to note from Luke, we looked at this picture a couple weeks ago, the way that the ancient mind thought about the cosmos, the the earth. The earth was like a disk that they sat on, and no matter what direction you went, you would end up with water. You could walk to the edge, and there was an ocean. If you dug straight down, there was water. Water must be up, up above us, because every once in a while it falls from the sky. So they envisioned this disk floating on water, and they, the idea of the abyss, so that bottom left corner and bottom right corner, you see the word abyss. It's the watery abyss that exists underneath the earth. And what's important about this is you can see on this, on this diagram a lake right here in the middle of the earth. And so if you have a body of water, the, like a lake, it must be an entrance to the abyss, to the underworld. And who lives in the underworld? Well, the demons do. You have all the pagan gods. Well, I'll show you in a minute. But that's where the demons live, and so that's going to enter the story. So, for instance, here's the abyss on this corner, here's the abyss on this corner. And the way the pagans thought about many of their gods, particularly the fertility gods, was that sometime around October to November, same thing in San Diego, as our weather changes, the fertility god who lives in the watery underworld comes out. So I have this arrow going up. The fertility god comes out from underneath of the earth, from the watery underworld, and it starts to move across the sky, and of course, it drops rain. Because when does it rain here in San Diego? So just like, so our weather and Israel's weather is very much the same, in that the rain will begin sometime October, November, and then around April. The weather stops now, I know all of the, you guys on the East Coast that's not how it happens, but for us out here and the, and in Israel, what they pictured was sometime around April when the when the rain stopped, it meant that God went back underneath the earth, and now the God existed now the God to a Jew is a demon, so the demons live in the abyss, they live in the waters under the earth, and they they revolve on this cycle of fertility as they bring rain to the, the earth, and water the earth. So you see the Sea of Galilee, what do you picture? Aha! Who lives underneath that, ab- that, that sea, or who lives in the abyss? That's the demons, and of course that's going to enter our story as we're reading this. Okay, so last week, and, or that two weeks in a row, we've noted, Jesus starts out with his disciples in the relig- on the side of the religious Jews, And he says, let's go to the other side. Now, that carries all kinds of meaning. The other side of what? Well, it's the other side of everything. It's the other side of the lake, but it's the other side of everything about life. And they end up in the Decapolis, and that's the pagans. And we looked last week, of course, that they landed somewhere around the the main city. The polis is called Hippos. On this map, there's a little... Town that they've labeled Gergesa because, uh, and they put a question mark because we don't know of a town named Gergesa, but Mark says they went across to the Garrusenes. And we talked all last week about how that may be a Hebrew word, Gerushim, the driven out ones. I'll review that in a minute.
1: The point being, you go to the other side, the Decapolis,
0: and we spent a good deal of time last week talking about, well, clean and unclean who's clean versus unclean and the decapolis was unclean you don't say the word decapolis lest your mouth become unclean it's a dirty word um, you don't step foot in the decapolis because you'll become unclean we do the same thing and that's one of the things that i wanted to make sure that we emphasize is before we point our fingers in judgment at somebody else you know jesus says before you point out the speck in someone else's eye, turn and look in your own eye. So we need to say, wait, how are we judgmental? How do we think about clean and dirty? Because we do the same thing. But the point is, Decapolis is dirty. It's, uh, it's the unclean place. So that's the how it's represented. Some of that comes from our disgust sensitivities, and that's a very powerful sensitivity in the world that will come out at times often unfairly to other human beings. All right, the the main city. The main city, so the main polis. That's important because Mark and Luke are going to say they went to the polis. Well which polis? It's this one right here. That's the that hillside is the city of hippos, meaning horse or susita, which means mare, and it looks like this the back of a horse. The the city's built like on the back of a horse. So hippos is the main polis. And then, again, we mentioned last week, we're going to the region of the Gerushim. So, we get this word Gergasa. question mark, because we don't know. And it's possible that gerushim, Hebrew word for the driven out ones, that's when God says, I will drive out, I will gerash before you those nations. Okay, where did those pagan nations go? They went right over there to the, to the Decapolis. So that becomes the region of the Gerushim. As it gets transliterated into Greek, Gerasenes. That's at least one thought about how we get to that. So, okay, that was all last week. That's all going to go in as we read this story from Mark as I'll title Get Out of the Boat Story. All right, so at this point, what I want you to do is turn to Mark chapter 5 1 to 20 i i'm this week i'm going to pull from the esv i just chose one randomly i don't have a reason for it there's no one bible that is more accurate than the next even though people will argue that there is so if we start out mark 5 1 to 20 this is what we did last week this was the whole the entire thing last week they came to the other side of the sea the country, now that word country in the ESV could be region. So, we think country as a defined space with boundaries, but that's actually region, the region of the Gerasenes, with the, um, as you can see, it has the footnote on it. Now, I want to show you one thing from Luke. So, if you do have your thumb in the Luke, you can look at Luke 8, verse 26, and Because I want to show you what Luke does. Luke is always explaining a little bit more. Like, uh, Mark says, let's go to the other side. Luke has it, let's go to the other side of the lake. So he tells his audience the lake. Here, instead of they came to the other side of the sea, the country of the Gerasenes, Luke says they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, and now he's going to add more detail which is opposite Galilee. Now, Galilee is the huge region. So, this little phrase, opposite of Galilee, is added by Luke to help his audience with the geography. It's not inside Israel. They're out of Israel now. It's opposite the Galilee. So, I just want to use these opportunities to show you how that as Scripture is developing, Luke is often adding details where Mark is fairly sparse.
1: That's verse 1. Let's go to verse 2. Mark 5,
0: verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. It's verse 2. Now, what we have to notice is the word tombs and unclean spirit. I'll show you later. Luke uses demons. Here, Mark uses a term, unclean spirits. So, a man came out of the tombs with an unclean spirit. Now look at verse 3. He lived among the tombs. Ah, you're repeating this again, Mark. We notice you've got repetition going on, so you want us to pay attention. And no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. Nobody had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs, verse 5, and the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, immediately, you see, I just want you guys to know, there's a couple things in here in Mark that I have open questions yet for God. I'm I'm waiting for God to show me because if you notice verse, the ending of 3 and 4, how often he repeats chain, chain, shackles, chains, shackles. There's got to be something there. I don't know what it is yet, but God willing, he'll show me one day. So that'll be exciting because I have something to look forward to. You pay attention to the, to the repetition, and I'll show you later how tombs and unclean spirits show up in, in rabbinic writing. So it comes out of that culture of, of uh, Judaism. All right, let's go to verse 6. Verse 6. And when he, that's the man, saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by your God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, That Jesus was saying to him, the man, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So, there's Mark's use of unclean spirit instead of demon. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. Now, pause for a second
1: here. Suddenly, in this dialogue, we get the word Legion. Now, where does Legion come from, that word? Well, it's a Latin word. And who speaks Latin? In Israel. The Roman occupiers. So, what we're going to see
0: is there's going to be a connection to Rome, and it's right here with this legion. It's going to be a connection that, especially Mark's first audience, when Mark wrote this 50 years later, and they read it for the first time. Ah, Rome and now you get a picture of something else going on remember there's multi the the text is always multifaceted so we can read it from many different ways okay so legion verse 10 and he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the region now he he and he begged he is the man begged him jesus not to send them which is a man the man and the demons out of the region now remember that those people were the expelled ones, right? So, they're, they're saying, hey, don't expel us again from this region. Now, I want to show you, because this is really critical to our thinking. I'm going to compare Mark 5.10 with Luke. So, once again, you might want to swing over to Luke here. So, Luke, or Mark 5.10 says, And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Don't expel us again. Don't drive us out. Let's look at the same verse coming from Luke, though, because he's going to add something. So, I, I added a ver- extra verse here. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons, notice the word demons, that's Luke's, had entered him. And then, verse 31, this is important. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the what?
1: The abyss. Where do the demons live?
0: In the abyss, right there. And as what we're going to see next, when the pigs go into the abyss, it's as if the demons are going to their home. It's uh, co- in, the, in the, cosmo- the, the idea of the cosmos, cosmologically, not cosmetology, cosmologically. The demons live in the abyss, and so it's important to note that Luke is adding the word abyss, because he wants to tell his audience, where do the demons, where do they live? They live under the abyss, and they don't want to get chained down there again. Okay, just an interesting note with Luke. All right, back to Mark. Sorry for all the switching over, but it's important that, that we pay attention to how Luke is describing this. All right, now, we're, now we go to verse 11, back in Mark. Now, there was a herd of pigs, so we have swine show up, feeding on the hillside, and they, the demons, begged him, Jesus saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So, he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. So, again, you see a repetition of something about swine, we'll talk about this. The swine were the sacrificial animal of the pagans. So you have the unclean spirits going into the pigs. The herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the abyss, into the sea. So they're going, it's like Jesus, they say, hey Jesus, don't drive us out of this region, but let us go in those pigs. And then as soon as they get to the pigs, they go right back into the abyss where they didn't want to go. Cool picture that's happening here. So they go back into the sea and they drowned in the sea. Of course, Luke adds the part about the abyss just to clarify. But notice pigs, because we're going to connect that again to this whole idea of pagans and sacrifices and sacrificial animal and uncleanness. All right, let's go to verse 14. We got to finish this up here. So the herdsmen fled and told told it in the city now that's polis so that's hippos they went to hippos and in the region and the people came to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and they saw the demon possessed man the one who had the legion and here's i think one of my favorite verses in the bible sitting there clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they begged Jesus, depart from this region. So the driven out ones and the people who don't want to be driven out are now begging Jesus, leave our region, leave the country. You be driven out.
1: Okay, finish it up here with these last two verses.
0: Verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged that he might go with him. But Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And the man went, and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Now, Everything in your being, when this man says to Jesus, let me come follow you, everything in our being wants Jesus to say, yes, come on, get in the boat with me, let's go, you've had a difficult life, let's... But he doesn't, and this is so powerful, it's so powerful, what does he say to the man? I'm not going to let you come with me, but go home to your friends and tell them. Tell them what? So notice. He doesn't say, tell them I'm the Messiah, or tell them about Abraham, or Moses, or the Scripture, or the Torah, or anything like that. He'd, how do we reach a, uh, an, a pagan world that doesn't believe anything about the Bible, right? He doesn't want him to quote Scripture or give doctrine. He just says, go home and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Show them a changed life. Tell your story. What's your story? How has God had mercy on you? How has God worked in your life? Because your story, leaving out all the doctrine, all the biblical quotes, all the text, everything, your story is very powerful because nobody can refute it. It's truth in the purest form. This is how God works in my life. And when he does that, everybody was amazed or everybody was marveled. It's such a key thing for us to recognize. You go tell your story to a pagan world. Now, once they start reading their Bible and, and getting deeper, now you can argue, argue the finer points of doctrine and all of those things. But that's not how we start. Start out by what's your story, and can you articulate your story? Because if it's a God story, it'll hit everybody at the exact moment. So, just something to note from, from this text. Very, very important. Okay, that's, the, the, that's the, the whole story about the demon-possessed man. We've read it a hundred times through our life. We'll read it, we'll read it another hundred times throughout the rest of our life. But let's go take a look at some details. So, this is a picture of Thusita, now at sunset. And what I want to do is connect the swine, the demons, and the word legion because those are going to be those are going to paint a picture particularly for Luke's audience or I'm sorry Mark's audience if Mark is writing in Rome and the Romans read this story they're going to think something different than we might think so so the first thing obviously we all know about swine being unclean god says in Leviticus don't eat swine don't eat pigs and what's very interesting is if you go to um In Israel, if you go to cities that were both pagan and had Jewish quarters, like there's a town called Sepphoris. Sepphoris sits about four miles north of Nazareth, and it was rebuilt, Roman city, at the time of Jesus. Well, the Jewish quarter, they know the Jewish quarter because you do not find pig bones. The archaeologists will not find any pig bones. You go to the other living quarters, pig bones all over the place. How do you know the Jewish quarters of these ancient cities? Archaeology says, aha, they didn't eat pigs. So, it's remarkable that you can see that it even shows up in archaeologists in, in archaeology. Okay, swine is unclean. Swine was the sacrificial animal for pagans. So, as the pagan gods, or we would say demons, are being worshipped, pigs are the sacrificial animal. And then we get that interesting thing that I've already mentioned, that legion is a Latin borrow word. So the moment you say legion, in a country that's being occupied by Rome, Rome enters the picture. Aha! Now, so we've got swine. That's unclean. You've got demons. You've got legion. And these are all going to get connected together, and I want to show you a few texts that'll help us to do that. I'm always running behind on time. I apologize. This is not on your sheet, but I'm going to give you a quick timeline because I'm going to introduce two documents that are, that come from the, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, if we go Genesis to Revelation, that's our Bible. So, we've got Genesis 1 is the very beginning, Revelation 22 is the very end. So, if that represents our entire Bible, the Old Testament, ending with Malachi, somewhere around 450 BC. Then New Testament doesn't start, obviously, till the birth of Jesus. So we've got this giant span of time, 450 years plus, that exists between the time of the Old Testament and the time of the New. And it's a tumultuous time when lots of change is happening. The Persians are in charge, then the Greeks are in charge, then Israel's in charge of themselves, then Rome shows up. There's a lot happening. There's a lot of writing during this time and there's a lot of re- wrestling with how do we live out this Old Testament business. So two bodies of literature that are familiar to us are one that's called the apocrypha and another that we we talk about as the pseudepigrapha, uh documents that were written often under the somebody else's name. So they they take a name like the Testament of Abraham even though it's not Abraham's Testament. So, it's important for us. This is one area that especially Western evangelical Christians are missing because we don't have it in our Bible. Catholics have it in their Bible. It's called the Deuterocanonical books. Anglicans are encouraged to read it just for history, but it helps us. It's a bridge. It helps us bridge from the Old Testament to the New as thoughts are changing, as ideas are being formed. So, it's important for us to at least recognize, not be afraid to pay attention to the Apocrypha and the the writings of the Pseudepigrapha, because it really helps us fill out what's happening by the time the New Testament shows up. So, I'm going to show you two writings, two quotes from two different writings. The first one is a book called Jubilees, and that was around 200 BC. And what they did is they take the Old Testament and they retell the Old Testament in a series of Jubilees. Jubilees are 50 year periods. And as they're rewriting it, they explain things. So it becomes explanatory. And we kind of bristle at this like, hey, wait a minute, what'd you do to the text? But it's, it's their way of retelling the stories and, and helping us understand. So the book of Jubilees is a retelling of the Old Testament. And then they, inc- they add things, their way of thinking. So that will be one. The second one is going to come from a book called First Maccabees. That's from the Apocrypha. And these events happen about 165 BC as the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes is trying to force conversion upon the Jews. And this ragtag army called the Maccabees rose up and destroyed the most powerful army in the world. And what we get out of that is the holiday of Hanukkah. So, as Jesus celebrates Hanukkah, we need to know, well, where is he getting that holiday from? And we find it, of course, in 1 Maccabees and 2 Maccabees. So, I'll, I'll bring a quote from there. And again, we're saying, what's the thinking happening during this time period that, that brings us into this, to the New Testament, to help us understand what is going on with the New Testament? Uh, just for, I, I didn't put this on your sheet, but for the for the video and those who would watch later, if you're trying to build out a, a library of uh, resources, there's a brand new book. It just came out in 2020 called the Jewish Annotated Apocrypha. Excuse me, it takes all of those Apocrypha documents and then Jewish scholars are pointing out how they interact with, intersect with Judaism. So, good tool to help you understand your New Testament. Okay, first one, swine sacrifice. So this is on your sheet, number four on the front. First Maccabees, chapter 1, verse 47, and I'll just show it to you on the screen, but essentially the the king, Antiochus Epiphanes, wanted to force the Jews to sacrifice pigs. So he, he outlawed anything that had to do with Judaism. And it says this, they should build new altars together with sacred precincts and shrines for idols. That's they, the Jews, should build these new altars. And they, the Jews, should sacrifice pigs and other ritually impure animal. Now, are the Jews going to do it? No. And the freedom fighters stood up and said, we will not do that. And we'll, we will fight and we will maintain our religious beliefs. And of course, then a war broke out. But so, I just want to show you the sacrifice of pigs comes in with 1 Maccabees. It also shows up in the writings of Josephus, the Roman historian. He says that Antiochus Epiphanes took a swine into the temple of Jerusalem and sacrificed it on the altar. So, or the altar outside the temple in Jerusalem. Either way, it's a swine is the unclean animal. Okay, so there's swine sacrifice.
1: Next. The word legion.
0: So obviously it's a Latin borrow word. The moment you hear Latin, you're going to think these Roman oppressors that are around us. And what's a legion? So the legion is, is a, uh, a group of Roman soldiers. The numbers I've, I've seen are somewhere around 6,100. But here's what's interesting. Of all the legions that they have, of all the Roman legions, the legion that was the main force in Israel when there was the revolt, 66 AD to 70, and this is why, I mean, for for Mark's first audience, when they read this story, you're not just thinking, well, that's a crazy story that happened by the sea. You think Rome, because the 10th legion was the Roman legion that was central in destroying the temple and destroying Judaism, or I'm sorry, Jerusalem in in taking down all the cities in Israel, and this is their emblem right here. So if you're a first century Roman, and you hear this story about legion and pigs, and the 10th legion happens to have the emblem as, as swine, and they're the ones who destroyed God's temple, you're immediately thinking, this is an anti-Roman document, because it fits. So, if we go back to this, you have swine, and that swine actually connects to the word legion because of the Roman emblem for the, for the 10th legion in Israel, and it connects to demons because swine is the sacrificial animals when you're sacrificing to the demon. So, you can see this is swirling together, and it's creating a picture of what's going on in the Decapolis and, in particular, Rome. Okay, let's go back now to the Decapolis, and I want to show you a quote from uh, Jubilees. So, Decapolis is unclean. We've mentioned that multiple times. Don't say it. Stay away from the Gentiles. Don't set foot in the Decapolis. Over and over and over. And you can clearly see with the swine why that would want to, that would keep people away. But let me show you another one. This comes from a writing called Jubilees. And this one I put on your sheet because, again, I don't think you have a copy of Jubilees sitting in front of you. So the book of Jubilees, 200 B.C., they did find it among the Dead Sea Scrolls. So this was a very popular book. And they're reinterpreting the stories from Genesis. And let me show you. There's going to be a conversation between Isaac and Jacob. And it's, I, I again, I put it on your sheet so you can read it there if you'd like. So, this is a conversation between Isaac and Jacob, and Isaac is going to tell Jacob to remember to keep the commandments. So, he says, now, my son Jacob, remember my words and observe the commandments of Abraham, your father. Now, what he does here is he summarizes the commandments. Separate from the Gentiles. And you say, wait a minute, is that the commandment from Abraham? Well, that's the interpretation of the writer of Jubilees. So there's nothing in Genesis that says separate from the Gentiles, but the writer of Jubilees is going to insert that here. He summarizes the commandments as separate from the Gentiles. Then he goes on and he says, Do not eat with them. Do not behave as they do. Do not become their colleague because their deeds are impure. And then the next verse is really the key here. All their ways are polluted, depraved, and detestable. They offer sacrifices to the dead. There you get sacrifices. they worship demons there's the demons and look at the next one. They eat in tombs. Where do we find the word tombs all over Mark so this document would shape your thinking right if you're a even though it's not scripture, it helps to shape the thinking of the collective consciousness that's going on in with those religious, with the religious Jews. And if you're raised in that type of collective thinking, this can affect it, right? And the, the eating in tombs, that's the, they, they're, they're, tr- they're trying to search out information from the dead, and God says, don't do that. Rely on me, even if you're not getting the answer you want. Rely on me. Okay. I'm watching the time, so I apologize. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move forward here. So I just want to show you, that's from Jubilees. Let me give you one from Rabbinic Thought, and it has to do with the idea of tombs. This now is number six on your sheet. All of this is this thinking is going into Mark's telling, right? The rabbis are putting prohibitions against going into cemeteries or being in the tombs. And this, this quote for the rabbis say, And one who spends the night in the tombs places himself in danger. And this is especially the case if he does it in order that an unclean spirit will rest upon him. This is what we find in Mark. You find the word tombs and you find unclean spirit. That's the rabbinic way of talking about the demons. So, all of this is going into the story that's all things outside of the text that they would understand that we don't necessarily see the rabbis are forbidding you to go into tombs because you go into a tomb, you'll end up with an unclean spirit. And that's exactly what the story tells us, the man who lives in the tombs. All right, so now this is the whole point. You've got legion and and the swine and the Romans and the unclean spirit and the tombs, and it's all being put together. And Jesus says to his disciples, let's go to the other side. They get in the boat, they go over there, and how did the disciples behave? Well, let's look at verse 2. So verse 2 starts, and when Jesus stepped out of the boat, or when he, when Jesus stepped out of the boat,
1: then you get to verse 18, and it says, as he, Jesus, was getting into the boat. What do you notice? Where are the disciples? They never
0: got out of the boat. They didn't step foot in the Decapolis. And it always says, Jesus and the disciples did this. Jesus and the disciples did this. And suddenly you get a story where the disciples don't follow Jesus. They won't step foot, you know. And you have to think about Peter. Peter struggles with this, doesn't he? He's, Peter's the one who doesn't, hey, we have rules against eating with a the Gentile. They're unclean. Paul gets on Peter's case because Peter will eat with the Gentiles when there's no elders from Jerusalem around. But the moment the elders show up, Peter's now acting all more righteous than everybody else, and he won't eat with the Gentiles. So Peter is struggling with this whole clean-unclean business, and he's the oldest disciple. So if he doesn't get out of the boat, the other disciples aren't going to move. But what does it tell you about Jesus, right? He takes his disciples to a place that everybody knows is unclean, and then Jesus breaks all the rules. And this is one of the keys to the story. He's breaking down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. And that's what Paul's arguments are. So there's a barrier that's been put up. And Jesus knows enough about the rules to start breaking them. And he goes and he breaks down the barriers, right? Because who's also made in the image of God? Those Gentiles. And that when we did the stuff about the heavenly man, and everybody has the capacity to be transformed into the image of the heavenly man, even the Gentiles do. As Paul's argument is, it's not just about the Jews that can, are in that, that image of God. It's everybody that's in the image of God. What I want to stress here is, what about us, right? So before we, um, you know, it's so easy for us to, to point the finger at other people and say in judgment, ah, those crazy Jews wouldn't go over and step in an unclean place. You know, before we do that, in judgment, you know, point the finger at us, right, just like the speck in our own eye. How do we, out of creating our holy space, how do we create clean and unclean divisions? Who are we leaving out? And that's a really difficult thing to do, and you can see throughout Christianity and all of our little churches, if we all think the same way, then we'll tend to agree on the same things, and we don't even notice that we're doing it. And so. We all have these blind spots, and all of us have to challenge our own blind spots. That's how we grow. We can't grow if, if we're not challenging our blind spots. So I think that so much of this story is about, what about us? What do we need to do to talk about that everybody's made in the image of God? And how do we reach a Gentile, pagan world that doesn't want to believe anything about the Bible? So this story is tremendous power for us to show us Not only how do we reach that a non-believing population, but that we have to go look for the non-believing population in order to reach them. You have to step out of the boat. And of course the disciples didn't want to do that. Okay, that's a lot of information. God willing, we were able to funnel that in to part four as they go across the lake, and the whole point being all of us have to at some point step out of the boat and challenge ourselves. Uh, remember, I said last week, too, the cool thing is, is whenever Jesus touches somebody that's unclean, he doesn't become unclean. They become clean. And so we have to think about that in our own lives. How do we reach out to somebody who our, our collective group would say is unclean? Don't do that because you might become unclean. And it's really it takes strong character to be able to do that. So. Let me go ahead and stop the share, and if there's any questions, please let me know. And I know I drove a lot of information in there. There's just so much, and there's more every as I was reading it this week, I kept thinking, I have to take stuff out. I have to I have to not add things because there's there's even more in there than we can imagine.